Welcome to the Money Answer Show with host Jordan Goodman. Whether you are starting out, deep into your retirement, or somewhere in between, the Money Answer Show has the know-how to help you. Now here's your host, Jordan Goodman. Welcome to the Money Answer Show. Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Richard Vague. He is the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's also the author of a new book called The Case for Debt, a Debt Jubilee, uh, about uh, re- basically uh, re- reducing the amount of student debt out there. Uh, welcome to the Money Answer Show, Richard. Thank you very much for having me. Just give us a little bit of background about you uh, before you got to doing this book. I spent most of my career in banking, primarily consumer banking. I was CEO of a couple of banks. I spent a brief amount of time in the energy business. I've been a venture capitalist and I now serve as a regulator, the Secretary of Banking and Securities for Pennsylvania. Very good. So let's start with the problem here on student debt. How big is the problem and how does it compare in the United States with other major industrial countries? Did you hear my question? It's significantly greater than in almost any other major industrial country because of the relative uh, lower amount of grants for university education and uh, the promotional aspect of those that market student debt. So right now, student debt totals are 1.8 trillion, and a decade ago, they were less than one trillion. So you can see the problem has gotten enormous. So the student loan program was changed in 2009 as part of Obamacare, as I remember. Uh, and it pretty much took out the, the private sector banks and pretty much made most student loans go through the federal government. Has that been a success or not? Well, it's been a mixed blessing because the U.S. government expanded this program in a way that allowed a lot of not-for-profit universities to be encouraged to participate. So I think with the U.S. government being there and no marketer of student debt being on the hook for the potential losses associated with that program, the program grew very uh, rapidly because of the aggressiveness of those efforts. And I think that has meant that a lot of folks have debt from schools they've gone to where the degree really doesn't allow them to increase their earnings power. Of course, the long-term argument for going into debt is with a college education and a graduate school education, you will have the skills and will far more out-earn whatever you're spending on the debt. Is that not what's working out for a lot of people these days? Absolutely. You know, the college degree has meant a lot in terms of the earnings power of individuals. But a lot of that relates to the specific degree that you get. Someone who gets a degree in computer engineering in today's world, I think it's going to be well situated to pay back debt. Someone who uh, gets a degree in liberal arts, where the jobs aren't as plentiful as they were once were in 
aren't as remunerative as they once were relative to the economy as a whole may have a lot of trouble uh, paying back their debt. So a lot matters is in terms of what school you go to and what degree you get. I mean, right now we have a very hot job. We just had a report of 3.6% unemployment rate. Uh, employers are desperate for workers. There's like 11 million unfilled jobs. You think this would be the ideal environment to come out of school and get a pretty high paying job because of such demand for workers. You know, I think that's true. And I'm, I remain very attuned to that market. But you still see a lot of those jobs being minimum wage type jobs, maybe not technically minimum wage, but close to it. entry level jobs, be they in restaurants or the like. So I think even if you get a job, the dilemma isn't completely solved by a long shot. Because what you're really aiming for is something that uh, pays very, very well and gives you a career path, gives you promotional opportunities over the long course of time. What is the economic impact of this uh, huge amount of people? I think it's 44 million people, something like that, having a lot of students that hanging over them. Yeah, we went around the country here a couple of years ago, and I frankly expected to find that the student debt were working out of. And instead what I found was that student debt was almost as pervasive for folks that were 40 and 50 and 60 as for folks that were 20. And to my surprise, I found a number of situations where folks that were still paying off their student debt at 40 and 50 years old were at a point where they were being asked to co-sign for their children's college debt. So you'd have a husband and wife uh, guaranteeing two of their children. So you'd have a household where you had four student loans. So you're saying that that amount of debt, both of the parents and the children, stifles the overall growth of the economy? Yeah, I think it's fairly profound. And, you know, when we see this uh, in how what economists call household formation in 20s. Folks are buying their homes several years later than they have historically. Folks are electing to have children several years later than they have historically. And there are any number of things contributing to that, but one that we see cited as or more often than any other is the sheer struggle that they have of paying their student debt and the feeling they have that they need to get that under control before they take on a mortgage or a spouse or have children. The second chapter of your book, which is called The Case for a Debt Jubilee, is called The Paradox of Debt. What is the paradox of debt? Well, debt is pervasive. Debt has been there not just in recent times, but back to the most ancient civilization. And it is required for even the most routine transactions you can imagine. Buying a shirt at a local store, they have to have a warehouse line to carry that inventory. So it's everywhere. And so what I would tell you is that it's necessary. Economies can't operate without it. 
It can often be good. It could be that thing that enables you to buy a home that appreciates in value and creates the net worth that you're aspiring towards. But debt can just as easily turn into a negative. And the primary two ways that that happens is number one, uh, when, you, when you have too much of it, as we were talking about uh, earlier, and it, it slows down your ability to be a vibrant, what I would call a vibrant participant in the economy, someone who's buying their house or making an addition to your house or um, buying a car or sending your kid to college. The other thing that it does is too much debt brings financial crises. And we have seen this in the 07-08 crisis. It was a $5 trillion growth in mortgage debt that brought that destruction. We saw it in Japan in the 1990s. We saw it in America in 1929. Too much debt that grows too rapidly can be a very harmful thing. So to me, debt is a, has a, the elements of a paradox. I mean, it seems like we're at a time when debt of all kinds is growing. Credit card debt has been growing rapidly since the pandemic has faded. The federal debt up to about 30 trillion. Mortgage debt is like 15 trillion. Car debt, medical debt, all the debts are growing dramatically. Is there something that it just, you just, at a certain point you reach the point of no return, you just take on too much debt? I think that's true. However, historically, the thing that has gotten us into trouble the most has been real estate debt. You pointed out in the numbers that you just cited, there's $35 trillion of what I would call private sector debt, households and businesses. Half of that relates to real estate. So if we get too much real estate debt, debt, mortgage debt or other kinds, that creates a problem that's big enough to impact the entire nation. Other areas are frankly much, much smaller. We had a massive problem in 2016 with energy sector debt. But that's only about a trillion dollars in total, only about one fifteenth the size of the real estate debt market. So even though it was catastrophic for that industry, the country as a whole barely felt it. So it kind of matters where that growth has occurred. Well, so you're saying that student loan is kind of similar in size to the energy debt. So why is it having a bigger impact than the energy debt? You know, my view is that Growth that is too rapid within a sector creates a crisis for that sector. So the energy, uh, rapid energy debt growth in 2016 created a crisis for the energy sector. Rapid growth in the student debt market is creating a crisis for young folks as they're trying to form households. But neither of those things is big enough to create a national crisis of the sort we saw in 2008. Generally speaking, it's only runaway real estate debt that creates national crises. Very good. We're going to take a break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Vague. He's the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's come out with a new book called The Case for a Debt Jubilee. You can find out more at his website, Richard Vague, spelled V-A-G-U-E dot com. We'll be back with this. 
All around the world, tech companies are innovating and driving returns for investors. Our crowd analyzes companies across the global private market, selecting those with the greatest growth potential, then brings them to you. From personalized medicine to cybersecurity to open source intelligence, a multi-billion dollar and growing market, our crowd is identifying innovators so you can invest where growth potential is greatest early. Our crowd is the fastest growing venture capital investment community. Our crowd's accredited investors have already invested over $1 billion in growing tech companies. 21 of the portfolio companies are unicorns. And many of our crowd's members have benefited from over 40 IPOs or sale exits of portfolio companies. Now you can invest in Syabra, whose AI-powered SaaS platform analyzes billions of online conversations to help companies gain authentic consumer insights while fighting disinformation in real time. Syabra is trusted by global media giants, consumer brands, and high-level government agencies. Invest today at our crowd. Invest in Syabra at OURCROW.com slash answers. You can join our crowd for free at OURCROW.com slash answers. Join the fastest growing venture capital investment community at OurCrowd.com slash answers. Nobody likes the guy who says, I told you so. The guy in 1991 who said to you, invest in the internet, it's going to be huge. Or the guy in 1997 who said, come on, this is going to be big. They call it social media. And the guy in 2009 who said, I'm telling you, man, crypto is real. Now, I'm not going to be that guy who says, I told you so. But I am telling you that there is a 21-year-old international company where you can become a global project partner, earning a passive income doing exactly what you're doing at this moment. No selling, no recruiting clients, no administering a business after hours. Visit www.mypassiveincome.life now. That's mypassiveincome.life. Don't let history repeat itself on this one. Earn a passive income. Now listen again. That's mypassiveincome.life. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to the show. This is your host. My guest this hour is Richard Begg. He's the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He's the author of a new book called The Case for a Debt Duplicate. And you can find out more at his website, richardbegg.com. Welcome back to the show, Richard. Thanks for having me. 
So there have been various policy solutions that have been proposed for this huge amount of student loan debt. The first one is growing our way out of the debt. What is wrong with that? You know, that's a, a solution that has been invoked by politicians, I think, for decades. When the government has growing its debt or the private sector is growing its debt, uh, a politician or a policymaker is able to, I think, very easily say, we'll just grow our way out of the problem. The problem with that is it doesn't actually work in real life. We've examined 47 countries going all the way back to almost World War II. And the number of occasions uh, where a country meaningfully grew its way out of debt, it, the number is almost zero. You know, I think there's a couple of places where high net exports like Saudi Arabia enabled them to, to do that. But for most countries, that simply hasn't been possible. Uh, and so I think we need to look deeper. The other way people say is that we can inflate our way out of debt. Now, inflation has picked up dramatically, and some would say that means that the, um, the, the dollars that people will be paying the debt in are cheaper dollars, and therefore it's not as much of a burden. Is, does that work? You know, inflation generally doesn't work unless it's ultra-high inflation. The last situation the U.S. had of high inflation which was from 1973 to 1982, the ratio of debt to GDP was actually higher at the end of that period than it was at the beginning. So, you know, if you're Brazil and you have a thousand percent inflation, that probably works. If you're in the United States and inflation is only gonna be, you know, high single digits or low double digits at worst, it, it probably does not work. What is your current view of inflation, by the way? People are saying it's just the beginning, it's going to accelerate more. Some are saying it's a temporary situation because of the war with Russia and Ukraine, and we're going to get the supply chain figured out, so inflation is going to come back down. What is your view of inflation currently? I'm in the latter camp. Uh, I think we have two or three years of inflation. That inflation can easily get to double digits if history is any precedent. But in the past, when we've had what I call supply depletion inflation, uh, it has ended very rapidly as things get fixed. I'll give you a great example. Uh, you know, in 1947, uh, with the supply depletion inflation of World War II, uh, re uh, inflation was at 14.4%. Two years later, it was at negative 1%. And uh, that was in an environment where interest rates were about one and a half percent. So it doesn't really relate to monetary policy nearly as much as people think. It really has to do with supplies, supply chains, uh, availability of workers and the like. So do you think the supply chain is gonna be improved? We're saying there's a huge shortage of truckers. Uh, the ports in Los Angeles and Long Beach are totally backed up. Uh, there's just not enough capacity to move things around. Is, is that going to be solved, therefore bringing down inflation? Uh, I think the answer is yes, but I think the time frame is not short. You know, I've kind of been in operations, business operations, most of my life, and operating problems always take far longer to solve than people think. I think it's reasonable to think that the frustration with the supply chain 
is going to be such that we're going to increasingly see doubling up and tripling up of orders as people get desperate uh, for supplies and are over-ordering them to, to decrease their risk. And then we wake up, you know, a year and a half, two years from now, and we've got an overabundance of not only are the supply chain problems solved, but we suddenly have a great overabundance of, uh, of supplies and we kind of have the opposite problem. So you're saying the next policy solution to getting uh, debt down is to pay our way out of debt. That sounds like a logical way to get us. What, what is wrong with paying our way out of debt? Paying down debt? Yes. Well, this is a fascinating one because it, it seems the, to be the most intuitively appropriate thing. Let's just pay down debt. But what happens is that when you pay down debt, and I'm talking about a net pay down. I'm not talking about a situation where I pay my debt down and 10 other people increase their debt. I'm talking about a situation where all 11 of us pay our debt down simultaneously. What we're really doing is taking money that we previously were spending, and now we're using that same money to pay something down Therefore, our spending is reduced by that amount, and GDP as a whole is reduced. So a net paydown of debt in the economy would bring about a recession or a depression. And that's something that's kind of not intuitive, so people don't think about, but it was in fact the heart and soul of the contraction that occurred from 1930 to 1933 the contraction of about 50% in GDP uh, that brought the Great Depression. It was mass payday, it was a lot of banks calling in loans from a lot of businesses and individuals because they were facing runs and they simply didn't have the funds to keep those loans in place. You're saying another policy solution that doesn't work too well is exporting our way out of debt. I mean, we're still a net importer of a lot of things, but how would that work to export our way out of debt? Well, there are a couple of big net exporters in the world right now, and the biggest of these by far is Germany. And people look at German debt and they see that it's relatively low, particularly government debt, compared not just to the United States, but to its its neighbors in Europe. And that is, there's no coincidence there. If you are a big net exporter, that means you're getting revenues from other parts of the world that can be used to pay down your own debt. So you can actually grow GDP and pay down debt at the same time if you're a big net exporter. But throughout history, the number of times that a country has been a net big net exporter has been rare. China certainly was in that position in 07, let's say. Most of the time when that happens, the other countries around aren't happy about it because that implies that they're, that in, a, in essence means they have to be net exporters and they start putting up trade barriers and the like. So I think a net exporting is a great way to reduce your debt if you can get away with it but most of the time what it results in is tariffs, trade wars. And I'd make the further observation, Jordan, that you made, which is 
the U.S. has pretty much never been a big net exporter. In fact, you know, in, in our lifetimes and the lifetimes of our parents, there were probably only one or two years where the U.S. Net, was a net exporter at all. In today's world, our net, our, we have a trade deficit equal to two, three, four percent of GDP. What is the impact of having us be a net, huge net importer from around the world? Well, this is something that folks tend not to look at, but the the dollar for dollar corollary to being a net importer is that the nation's debt, particularly its private sector debt, this is businesses and individuals, their debt goes up. If we have a billion dollar trade deficit, that means our aggregate debt in the private sector has to go up a billion dollars as we pay for it. And the other thing that that by definition implies is that our financial network, our financial assets minus liabilities uh, gets worse, gets depleted. So, you know, in my own view, uh, being trade neutral is a more important objective than I think it's historically been given due. Uh, I'd love to see us in trade improve our trade position. And by the way, I don't agree with those that think the way to get there is through tariffs. I think the way to get there is to invest more in R&D, in both you know medical and technology and the like, and become have better products and become a more powerful exporter. So you don't think that what President Trump tried to do, which is to impose tariffs on China and Canada and other places? Uh, to, to boost domestic uh, industry is not the way to go to improve your trade export. Well, the proof's in the pudding. You know, he, he did that aggressively, probably more aggressively than has been done since the 1920s. And uh, he, we ended up with a higher trade deficit than when he took office. So clearly, you know, the better way to do it is just become a more, you know, a more capable competitor. We're already really strong in a lot of areas, but we need to pour it on and get a lot better in some areas we're a little weak in, including, for example, manufacturing, where we've kind of ceded leadership in manufacturing uh, to a lot of Asian countries. Let's reinvest in that stuff and the trade deficit will take care of itself. Very good. We're going to take another break. This is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Begg. He's the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. His new book is called The Case for a Debt Jubilee, and you can find out more at his website, richardvegg.com. We'll be back with this. Stocks, bonds, investment opportunities, financial news, and talk. We can help. Call us now toll-free, 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Do you or someone you love have a life insurance policy that's no longer needed or not affordable? Did you know that you can sell your policy for cash? Your reason for buying life insurance has probably changed. Thousands of Americans turn to life insurance settlements to help sell their policies. They act as your representative, getting the highest market offer for you. You've got nothing to lose by simply inquiring. If you're over 64 with $100,000 or more of life insurance, you may already qualify. 
Call 877-485-6681 to get your free non-binding appraisal or visit FundingLife.com. Life Insurance Settlements. Discover the true value of your life insurance. 877-485-6681. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Money Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Richard Fave, Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. He has a new book out called Peace for a Debt Jubilee. You can find out more at his website, richardfave.com. So we've set up the problem of all this uh, debt, particularly student loan debt, about $1.8 trillion. Now, during the most recent presidential campaign, this was definitely an issue. And uh, President Biden uh, proposed a relief for some debts and also some free community college. Would what he proposed uh, do what you're looking for? Well, it's, it's complicated, let me say. Uh, but let me give you just a touch of background first. And that is, if you look in the U.S., in 1945, our aggregate household debt, not just student debt, but mortgage debt and credit cards and auto loans and the like, was 35% of GDP. Today, it's 170% of GDP. So this debt problem is pervasive across all channels and creates, I think, the economic imperative for solutions. Now, when you're looking for solutions, you have to look in a way that you think can actually be embraced or accepted by Congress. And the problem with blanket forgiveness is that, and we've seen this in a dramatic way, that many folks that paid off their college student debt diligently or many parents who along with their children saved over many years would not be eligible for any benefit while someone who, let's say, had poor repayment habits would. So there's you know, obvious and great unfairness in doing something just in blanket fashion. So when we think about Jubilee, when we think about the idea of debt relief, we try to think of things that can re-replace into it some element of fairness. And by the way, as an aside, you may remember that it was Obama's debt relief uh, proposal in 09 that gave rise to the Tea Party. Right. So a political backlash against debt amnesty you know, is a very real thing. So we tried to think of ways that would at least partially satisfy the folks on the many sides of this equation. 
So when it comes to student debt, something that has a long track record is the use of volunteer service as a way to become eligible. That's military service, that's Peace Corps service. Today there's a program that if you enter the not-for-profit world as a profession, that you would get some form of debt relief. So we took that idea and said that if you uh, incur student debt and you make, let's call it, 90 consecutive payments on that student debt, and you also serve 700 hours during that period in bona fide community service in a in a, uh, an approved or certified not-for-profit, you would then be eligible to have the remainder of your debt uh, forgiven. And this is an idea that we hope comes close to threading the needle. You know, it's, we're not just giving away something, somebody has to, to work, but it gives them a way to get at least part of their debt forgiven in a way that's very helpful to them. Has this ever been done in other countries? You know, it hasn't been done in the way that I proposed it anywhere, but the volunteer, the, the idea of voluntary service in exchange for university level education permeates all these other programs that I mentioned. Now you say this goes all the way back to the Bible. Describe exactly what a jubilee was in those days and what impact it had on society. Well, this is something that was very surprising, I think, to archaeologists and anthropologists that were working through uh, you know, ancient history. They kept coming across these mentions of debt amnesty and rules and laws in and around debt. And it turns out that from the earliest civilizations, debt was pervasive, you know, usually around agriculture uh, and the like. And it would become the case because of famine or flood or war or any number of other reasons, it would become the case over time that the population at large would be so overburdened with debt that it would bring that society to a crisis. And keep in mind, if you're a farmer in ancient Egypt or Babylon, when you get a loan, you're often having to pledge your child as collateral for that loan. The debt, debt bondage is one term used for that. So the king would make a proclamation that forgave the, the debt of the rank and file in a way that gave them a fresh start. And that was an idea that persisted for hundreds and thousands of years and gradually faded away, and that's a story unto itself. But Israel in particular took that idea and instead of leaving it to the king's whims, codified it into the Old Testament, or the, the, the Septuagint and the Torah, that uh, every, after every seven cycles of seven years, there would be a year of jubilee. And that was the horn was called the yobel, and that's where the word jubilee comes from. And it was, of course, a massive celebration because it wiped clean the debt slate of folks throughout uh, Israel and gave that society, gave all these societies an economic boost when it happened. So what happens to the lender? I mean, in the in case of student debt, the vast majority of that t debt today is held by the federal government. If they forgive 
all or a significant portion of it, it just becomes an expenditure on the government's part, just adds to the federal debt, because they're never going to get it repaid. The, that, that's the second side of the equation that a lot of not thought needs to be given to. It's easiest when it comes to student debt, because 90% of it is a loan that sits on the books of the federal government. And for them to forgive that debt is just a reduction in the net worth of the federal government. So that's really straightforward. There's other areas where it's a little more complicated. So after the 08 crisis, when 15, 20 million homes were underwater, so people had a home that was worth 200,000 and a mortgage that was 350,000, we would have proposed at that time that the lenders be allowed to reduce that mortgage or write down that mortgage from 350 to 200 and proportionately write down the payment of the debtors. And to make that palatable to the lender, we would propose that they be able to take the tax advantage of the write-off at that moment, but spread the accounting loss over 30 years, let's say. And that would have made it quite feasible for the lending industry to do that. In other words, you're using tax and time uh, to make that something that's desirable for the lender. So I think you can get creative in some of these areas. Often in the case of forgiven debt, it's considered income to the borrower. So if you owe 100000 and it's forgiven, you, ha you get a 1099 for that 100000 and you have to pay taxes on it. Is that what you would propose as well? Absolutely not. You know, when you constructed this law, you would have to pay careful attention to the tax implication, both to the borrower and to the lender, and do it in a way that does not create any tax liability to the, uh, to the borrower when the forgiveness occurred as part of the law. So, okay, so what has been the reaction to this? When you proposed this debt jubilee, um, is, is there a lot of support from that in government now? You know, we are beginning, the, the reception of this book has been extraordinary. You know, the sales are excellent. Uh, they're growing. We're beginning to hear from folks. Uh, I think, you know, if you're talking about a multi-step effort to try to bring an idea forward, the first thing you have to do is go to the economics profession itself. Because what you know is that, you know, a, a senator or, or a congressman, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to get their staffer who's involved with student lending to call their favorite economists and say, you know, do you like this idea or not? So a lot of what we're doing now is getting the response that we are, are able to get from within that community. And I think, I think there's a lot of receptivity to that idea. I, I see it's making progress. But we're, we're in this for the long haul. This is a problem that's going to be here today, tomorrow, 10 years from now. So we recognize that we've got a lot of work to do. This was even part of the Build Back Better program, as I remember. I think that was for giving $10,000 student loan debt. Is that correct? And that got dropped out. Well, the whole Build Back Better bill didn't pass. But that was something that conservative Republicans objected to, saying it's just a, a giveaway to people who don't really need it. Yeah, you know, in my discussions with, you know, I've talked to folks on both sides. When I talk to the good folks that are all about just completely forgiving this debt, I have to have the conversation about, we've got to propose something that's acceptable on both sides of the aisle, or at least doesn't 
does it bring universal objection on one side of the aisle? So I think that's where we need to be paying our attention. And I think there's some, you know, there's some brilliant people who have, you know, enormous hearts and, uh, you know, are, are spectacular citizens. I'll mention uh, Astra Taylor of the Debt Collective as an example. These, these are superstars. But I think, you know, across the board, folks are slowly beginning to realize we can't just come in with the, you know, the, the most idealistic program. We have to be willing to consider programs where we get some traction uh, from both sides of, of the aisle. So when you propose this public service uh, way as a way of repaying the debt, is that something that attracts conservatives more? Pardon, I didn't hear the end of your question. Is that something that attracts conservatives more when you offer this public yeah, service? Yeah, and my conversations thus far, absolutely. You know, there, there, there's, there's this real uh, entrenched idea among Americans, not just Republican congressmen, but wherever I go across the country, this, this idea of fairness, the idea of, 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 of earning, the idea of you know, not having giveaways, and so, you know, I, I get a little bit more of a, of a positive reception. There's a begrudging positive exception. You know, even my most hardcore uh, conservative friends will say, you know, you know, I hate to admit it, but that's probably something I could support. Uh, but, you know, those victories come one at a time. Oh, very good. Okay, we're going to take another break. Uh, this is Jordan Goodman of The Money Answer Show. My guest this hour is Richard Vague. He's the Secretary of Banking and Securities for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. His book is called The Case for a Debt Jubilee, and you can find out more at his website, richardvague.com. We'll be back after this. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Are you a homeowner tired of making monthly mortgage payments with little progress towards paying down your principal? Does paying off your home in five to seven years without making larger or more frequent payments sound appealing? Paying off your home in full in five to seven years is really possible thanks to Truth and Equity's Mortgage Equity Optimization System, a money management approach that puts your money to work for you 24-7. If you own a home with some equity, have a decent credit score and verifiable income, you owe it to yourself to learn more about Truth and Equity's program. There's no need to replace your mortgage or refinance in many cases. The system works for new home purchases as well as current mortgages. Your home is your largest investment. Own it outright in five to seven years. Call Truth and Equity, 888-262-5540 or visit truthandequity.com, 888-262-5540. Jordan Goodman is an affiliate. He recognizes quality solutions, forming relationships to help improve the lives of his listeners. You've been listening to The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman. If you have a question for Jordan or his guest, please call us now at 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Now back to Jordan. Welcome back to The Answer Show. This is Jordan Goodman, your host. My guest this hour is Richard Vague, Secretary of Banking and Securities for Pennsylvania. His new book is called The Case for Debt Jubilee. You can find out more at his website, richardvague.com. Richard. Thank you. So you're talking about more than just student loan relief. You're talking about mortgage debt relief. So how would that work? Are you also talking about a public service commitment to getting some relief on your mortgage? You know, we, we've had to be creative 
and we've come up with different ideas for different areas. Uh, the mortgage debt and relief area is the one I was describing a moment ago where we can, I think, uh, look to time itself to help us solve the problem. And in fact, this is an idea that was used previously when mortgages were so deeply underwater in the Volcker rate increase era. So it was, it was used in 1982. Uh, the regulators let SNL spread their losses on the sales of underwater mortgages over 10 years. So we're, we're being a little more aggressive than that. We're saying that in areas where there's a mortgage problem, let's write the mortgage down to the appropriate level. Let's right size the payment to the individual to reflect that. And it's, by the way, always at the borrower's option. They, they only do this at their option. Uh, let's let them spread the mortgage out over the loss out over 30 years on the lender's books in exchange for this the borrower would cede a negotiated portion of their gain on eventual sale so if you know if they sold their two hundred thousand dollar house in 10 years for two hundred fifty thousand dollars they might give 10 percent of that or 20 percent of that let's say ten thousand dollars to the lender in exchange for uh, this uh, write down of their mortgage uh, earlier. So I think we can get creative on the mortgage side in a way that's uh, satisfactory to all parties. You also talk about healthcare debt relief. How big a problem is healthcare debt and how would that relief work? Well, here's one where it's a lot more pervasive than I ever thought. And I was in the consumer lending business years ago. Um, right now, fully half of the consumer debt, bank, consumer bankruptcies involve a significant portion of healthcare debt. It's a causal element in those bankruptcies. And I think that's true for delinquency and charge off short of bankruptcy as well. Surprise medical bills, high deductibles, unexpected expenses uh, in the United States alone as compared to other developed countries you know has huge problems in that area that are affecting half of all households and we need to figure a way out of that and, and I, I say that as a business person and as a banker because uh, consumers that are in better financial shape are better for everyone and it's kind of an insidious problem and you know the only idea that i came up with in this book is a means tested uh, uh reimbursement for certain medical procedures catastrophic medical procedures uh obviously we need to do better than that but that at least would be a start you also talk about bankruptcy law reform now we've had several forms of the bankruptcy law but usually it's been more kind of creditor oriented i think the last one was called the uh, avoidance the, the debtor abuse act, something like that. Basically, the idea is debtors How would you change the bank? Well, it's very interesting. And I, I'm a career lender, so I think I have some basis for saying this. But, you know, the careful study of actual bankruptcies yield the fact that there's very little abuse where consumers are trying to gain the system by declaring bankruptcy. 
Bankruptcy is a highly traumatic, life-changing matter. People don't go into it lightly. And I think the lending industry has gone in and pushed for things that the lending industry, in my view, didn't even really need in terms of a tightening of bankruptcy. I lived through a couple of those laws as a lender, and I'm here to tell you that the loss experience after that change in bankruptcy laws was not better than it had been prior to those bankruptcy laws. It just shifted into other categories. Instead of being bankruptcy, it was just a conventional loss. And I think what we forget, I think, I think we've constructed bankruptcy laws that are designed as much to punish as to fix the underlying problem. And to me, that's a little bit of a mis misguided idea. So for example, we should be at the point of bankruptcy doing things that allow the individuals who go through that bankruptcy to continue to work at their job. But the way the bankruptcy works relative to automobiles, loans, and home loans, you have to move out of your home, you have to give back or sell your car. Uh, that actually makes it harder for you to pay back your loan and keep your family together. And so we recommend a series of changes uh, to bankruptcy laws. And by the way, we didn't do the work on this. We've, we've taken the great work others have done. But, you know, let's, let's let that person keep paying on a car at a reduced level, you know, writing it down what the bankruptcy court says the true value is. But let's let that person stay in the home for at least some continued ongoing payment. And that will allow them to keep their job, uh, try to keep their family together and the like in a way the current law does not. One of the things that was changed in the bankruptcy law was that student loans were not dischargeable in bankruptcy. You think that should be changed? I do. So, you know, as a lender, I know that if it can't be discharged in bankruptcy, that's significantly to my advantage as a lender. You know, I can keep, I can keep going after that borrower, you know, forever. And um, that, that gives a major advantage of the, to the lender. And in my own personal view, this is just my view, having been in that industry for several decades, is anytime you give the lender an advantage, that makes the lender willing to lend that much more. It removes an element of caution from the lender's practices. And I actually think for lenders to have an additional element of caution helps everybody. It helps the lender, it helps the borrowers. The borrowers don't need no more debt than they can carry. So I think, I think allowing student debt to be bankruptcy might introduce an element of caution into the lending practices that would be healthy. You also talk about small business debt relief. Small businesses have a lot of debt, not all of it through the SBA. How would small business debt relief work? You got the same thing there. And I think, you know, it's, well, it's one of the old tried and true statements that, you know, any economy, and especially in America, is built on a lot of small businesses. It's, it's the way someone can really start to build up a, a security for their family and perhaps even wealth for their family. And, um, and I think we can use the same kind of mechanism here. Banks are loath to write down a small business loan to a more appropriate amount because they have to take that loss in the current period. 
You know, if I, if I restructure that loan in March, I have to take that loss in March. Uh, and what we would say here again is, let that small business uh, person at their option, let the bank write down their loan and write down their payment, uh, spread that loss over 30 years, and in exchange, the small business would just see some element of ownership to the lender. It's it's really kind of, a, in the case of a mortgage in here, it's, it's kind of a wrinkle on the debt to equity swap that we see uh, very commonly used in larger businesses. In the roughly two minutes we have left, describe us to us how it would benefit society to have the jet that Jubilee you're talking about. What kind of a difference would it make in our economy and society? Well, I think uh, GDP growth would increase, pure and simple. You know, we would have healthier consumers. They would be out uh, participating more vibrantly in the economy. You know, the, the, the two decades that had the best, lowest debt ratios uh, in the U.S. were the 1950s and 60s. And they also had the highest GDP growth uh, in that period. Today, we have, you know, among the slowest. There's a direct relationship between the amount of debt consumers and businesses carry and the slowdown in growth. Uh, I'd like to see that change. You're hopeful it's actually going to happen. I think it contributes for sure. You know, in, in, in my book, you know, we don't claim to change the world. We just claim to get the world smarter, started down a better path. Very good. Well, thanks so much. My guest this hour has been Richard Vague. He's the Secretary of Banking and Securities in Pennsylvania. His new book is called The Case for a Debt Jubilee. You can find out more at his website, richardvague.com. Thanks so much. I think you really have our audience thinking about a whole new idea here, Richard. Thank you so much. Thanks again. We'll be back next week with another edition of The Money Answer Show. Goodbye for now. Thank you for joining Jordan Goodman and the Money Answer Show. If you have a question for Jordan, please visit his website at www.moneyanswers.com. And be sure to tune in every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time right here on Voice America Business. See you next week.